Thank you. Oh. Well, thank you for that wonderful introduction. Um, it made me even somewhat interested in my own life. Um, thank you, too, for showing up on such a wretchedly hot and humid day. It's I know it's really tropical out there, and uh, so I'm doubly happy that, uh, that you were willing to, to weather that and, and uh, come out today. Now, my book about Theodore Roosevelt tells a story of personal tragedy and recovery. And we don't usually associate tragedy with Theodore Roosevelt. He was just too ebullient for that, you know, uh, especially as president. But I'm not writing about the iconic Theodore Roosevelt who made it to Mount Rushmore. I'm writing about a, a much younger man in his mid-twenties who went west to uh, run a cattle ranch in the badlands of Dakota Territory in what is now North Dakota, uh, close against the Montana border. He was in extreme western North Dakota. He didn't just go west, as Horace Greeley might have urged uh, as a young man. He was, he was compelled to go west. Events forced him in that direction, and we will get to that. But before we head off into the Badlands, <clears throat> I want to give you a little brief background on Theodore Roosevelt. Um, the Roosevelt aficionados are probably going to be familiar with this, but um, I think there are some high points in his life that we need to, to touch on. He started life as a city kid in New York City. And he was a, a member of a so, social elite, the Knickerbockers, who were people uh, who could trace their uh, ancestor in America back to the Dutch who arrived here in the mid-1660s. Uh, it was a fairly old uh, New York family. His, uh, his grandfather was one of the five richest men in Manhattan. The family uh, made their money on glass. Uh, they produced a lot of the window glass that New York City needed as it grew. Uh, they were also into banking and uh, a lot of wise investments in New York real estate. Um, young Roosevelt uh, was an avid outdoors person almost from childhood and, uh, and also an avid hunter. But he wasn't very healthy. He was very sickly as a child. He, um, he suffered from asthma and from a stomach ailment that seemed to be related to stress. It was some sort of enteritis that would leave him sickened for days at a time. And uh, th this would pop up you know, as I said, during times of stress, but even when during happy times. If he had too good a time, he would sometimes get uh, sick to his stomach and have to go to, go to bed for sometimes for days. Um, in his autobiography, which I quote in my book, Roosevelt wrote, I was a sickly, delicate boy, suffered much from asthma, and frequently had to be taken away on trips to find a place where I could breathe. One of my memories is of my father walking up and down the room with me in his arms at night when I was a very small person and of sitting up in bed gasping with my father and mother trying to help me. Now, I'm sure that you know, all these years of sickness as a child shaped a lot of his attitudes later in life. But when he was about 12, he started a strenuous physical uh, fitness regimen that was designed to build up his chest and help him with his, his breathing and his, his asthma. And it didn't really relieve him of asthma or enteritis, but he, uh, he, um, he did become much, much sturdier and much hardier. So that in his teens, he actually won a boxing championship at the gym where he worked out. And he also took, um, uh, when he went to Harvard, he took trips to Maine, hunting trips to Maine, and he would uh, hike around in deep snows and up, up uh, mountainsides and so on. He was very rugged, um, but he was still uh, not a robust person. He was about five feet eight, and he weighed maybe 135, 140 pounds. When in his senior year at Harvard, a doctor told him uh, that he had a weak heart and should avoid vigorous activity. And Roosevelt pledged that he would do the exact opposite of that. Okay, now if we could go back to mid-September 1883, we'd find 24-year-old Theodore Roosevelt in the badlands of Dakota Territory. 
we'd see them riding around on horseback, oftentimes in pouring rain, hunting for uh, buffalo, uh, or American bison, if you prefer that, that term. Um, the bison were nearly extinct in North America at that time, and Roosevelt wanted to kill one before they were all gone, which was a fairly typical attitude among sport hunters of that time. Uh, uh, they oftentimes were almost in a race to kill the last of a, of a species. So in 1883, one of the few places where bison still roamed south of Canada was in the Badlands of Dakota Territory, which is why Roosevelt went there. He hired a guide and he spent three weeks riding around uh, tracking down bison. Now during those weeks, Roosevelt um, developed a kind of an infatuation for the Badlands. Uh, the, this uh, kind of weird uh, land formations they have there, the uh, remoteness of the area appealed to him. It was a rich grassland. Um, so that he knew that uh, you could raise cattle in this area. And also there was the hunting. Uh, there, the Dakotas were one of the last places where you could still find most of America's big game animals and shoot them. Um, so before returning home, Roosevelt wrote a check for $14,000 and turned it over to two men that he met up there and uh, told them to buy some cattle for him and put them loose on the land that they claimed as their own and uh, they would manage these cattle for him and take a share of his profits. He was pretty trusting in this. He told the man, you know, if I didn't trust you, I wouldn't give you this money because they said to him, oh, you know, how do you know you can trust us? I just do. And um, at that time, uh, a lot of wealthy uh, Easterners and Europeans were investing in cattle because cattle in the 1880s were like tech stocks in the 1990s and with much the same result for the investors, by the way. But uh, Roosevelt thought he'd found a way to make money quickly and without any risks. So um, uh, now his uncle James Roosevelt, who was his financial advisor, told him that cattle were really a shaky deal and he should avoid it. But Roosevelt forged ahead anyway. Consequently, when he returned home to New York City after his hunt in 1883, he was a rancher or a cattleman. Now he was at a good point in his life at this moment. In late 1883, his career was going well. He'd gotten himself elected to the New York State Assembly at the age of 23, making him the youngest person who had ever held that, an office there. Uh, he became one of the leading political lights of his time. He was a household word across the state of New York. He was a reform politician. He uh, was part of a group of young, mostly young politicians who were trying to root out the corruption that um, plagued uh, people, you know, both the national, well, I'm sorry, both the state and local levels. Uh, he was an anti-corruption candidate. Because he was wealthy, there was the sense that he couldn't be corrupted. So he quickly became kind of a hero. A matter of fact, one of his colleagues said uh, of Roosevelt, we hailed him as the dawn of a new era. He was our ideal. The political success was the only thing he had going for him. In December 1882, when he was barely 24, he, uh, his first book was published. Uh, it was the Naval, uh, History of the Naval War of 1812. Um, it was the first of about 40 books that he would write in his lifetime, and it sold three editions within two years. It became a college textbook at several, several schools, and it could be found on every vessel in the U.S. Navy because it was required to be there by regulation. So he was already something of an accomplished author, though the book itself is pretty boring. And then there was Alice, his wife. And this is really the heart of the story here. Uh, she was a cousin of one of his Harvard classmates, and he first met her at her home outside Boston in October of, eight, of 1878 when he was a junior in college. Now, Alice Hathaway Lee was a member of a wealthy banking family in the, the Boston area. She was quite a beauty. Uh, a relative described her as having golden hair and dove gray eyes. She stood about five foot seven, which made her only an inch shorter than Theodore Roosevelt. She was so bright and energetic that her family called her sunshine. 
She was quite athletic. She won tennis tournaments, and she liked long cross-country treks, and she was literate. Uh, she and Roosevelt had matching tastes in literature. They liked the same poets, especially Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, who wrote one of Roosevelt's famous favorite poems, The Saga of King Olaf, which was predictably about a warrior king. So he met uh, Alice, and uh, he pursued her for well over a year. She kept encouraging him and discouraging him and encouraging him and discouraging him. And at times, he despaired of ever winning her. He got so overwrought that in autumn of 1879 and into the winter of that year, there were many nights when he didn't even go to bed. He would just wander around the, the snowy woods of Cambridge, Massachusetts all night thinking about her. Uh, one of his uh, fellow students was so alarmed that he actually called up. He contacted Roosevelt's family and said, you better come down here and talk to him. He's flipping. You know? And uh, Roosevelt himself would later say that he was nearly crazy during the year that he was pursuing her. But finally, in January of 1880, after much pleading on his part, she agreed to marry him. And he wrote in his diary, and I, during, I, I focus on this period in my book, and I quote extensively from his letters to her and hers to him. Um, they're quite emotional, but uh, he wrote in his diary that if loving Alice with my whole heart and soul can make her happy, she shall be happy. So there we have Roosevelt in late 1883. He's a rancher. He's a political power. He's an author, and he's married to a woman he deeply loves. And she's pregnant with their first child. So everything was good for Theodore Roosevelt at this time. But as people have been saying for thousands of years, fortune is, is fickle. On the morning of February 13, 1884, Roosevelt was in Albany at the State Assembly. And he received a message saying he was now the father of a, of a little girl. And later that afternoon, he received another message, message saying that his wife wasn't doing very well and he should come home. So he got on the train and headed back to New York City on a very foggy night, and he didn't get home until midnight. He went to his mother's house, which is where his wife was staying during the final weeks of her pregnancy. And he knocked on the door, and his younger brother, Elliot, uh, who would um, one day be the father of Eleanor Roosevelt, uh, answered the door and said immediately, there is a curse on this house. Because not only was Roosevelt's wife gravely ill, but so was his mother. And within the next 14 hours, both his mother and his wife died his wife while he held her in his arms. His mother died of typhoid at the age of 48 and his 22-year-old wife from kidney failure. It was Bright's disease. So during the, the days leading up to the funeral, Roosevelt was in, a, was in a daze. And around this time, he wrote in his diary, for joy or for sorrow, my life has now been lived out. He really thought it was over for him. He was never going to love again, and he was probably never going to be happy again. And he concluded that the only way to escape from this grinding grief was activity, was a lot of hard work. So he went back to Albany, and he threw himself into a lot of political work. Uh, he produced a document that was something like a million pages long, and uh, he, he just kept a horrendous pace up. And he also got involved in national politics. He was head of the New York delegation to the Republican National Convention that year, and he led the fight to keep James G. Blaine, a former U.S. senator from Maine, he tried to uh, keep Blaine from winning the nomination because Blaine symbolized corruption to the reform Republicans. Um, uh, my book details that campaign a, a little. Uh, I, I tried not to go into too much detail on the things that are covered in, in most other books, but I, I do talk about that if you want more details on it. Uh, but at any rate, Blaine did win the nomination, and Roosevelt was somewhat dismayed, and, um, but nevertheless, this brings us to a major turning point in Roosevelt's life, a period from which he emerged much more as the Theodore Roosevelt that the world knows today. Practically the moment the GOP convention ended, he got on a train and headed back to the Badlands. And he hoped that he could settle down in the West, run his ranch, 
uh, become a writer, forget his sorrows, and mend his health. Now why he chose the Badlands um, is, uh, is, is, a, is another question. The Badlands was in the area of the last frontier, which would be closed or declared closed only six years later. The Badlands gave Roosevelt a chance to actually live on the frontier and to be a pioneer like his heroes, uh, Daniel Boone and Davy Crockett and so on. And um, he, um, it would give him a chance to hunt because of all the big game, which I suspect was a wonderful distraction from the de depression that was haunting him at this time. And it gave him a rugged life with a lot of fresh air. So there was the hope that he could recover his health and uh, on the side write books. And he did in fact write several books while he was out there and established himself as an author. Now before we go on with Roosevelt, let's take a look at the Badlands environment of that time. Uh, and that time was June 8th, 1884. That's when he arrived there. He got off a train in Medora, Dakota Territory, which is a brand new town. There were about 100 buildings there. It had only been established, the town, uh, about four or five months earlier. There were about 300 residents of this town, permanent and transient residents. Uh, this included miners and lumberjacks, former buffalo hunters and ranchers and cowboys. Now ranching in the Dakota Badlands was unlike any cattle operation in America today. It was open range ranching, which you may be familiar with. Um, a just as Roosevelt did, ranchers would just buy a bunch of cattle and turn them loose along the Little Missouri River in this case. And the cattle would just roam around like wild animals. There were no fences. And a rancher would build a house along the river. That would be his headquarters with some corrals and outbuildings. And that was a ranch. And the ranchers didn't own the land. They were squatters. The land actually belonged to the federal government or the American people and to the railroads. And in fact, a rancher who applied for title to his land was seen as kind of suspect because they wondered, well, why, why would he do that? And putting up a fence was absolutely taboo. So uh, this was uh, the wide open uh, west. And twice a year, of course, the ranchers would have to round up all their cattle and brand them so they, they could tell who's, you know, that's the only way they had of knowing whose cattle were where. And uh, they would ship off some of the cattle to market. The roundup was a big, uh, almost a festival, uh, one of the few times these folks actually got together in any numbers because usually they were scattered across these ranches. The men who worked the cattle range could be divided into two classes. There were cattlemen or ranchers like Roosevelt who owned cattle, and there were the cowboys who worked for the ranchers. Um, they were employees. Now, contemporaries of the 1880s took a really dim view of cowboys. The Cheyenne Daily Leader in 1882 uh, called cowboys foul-mouthed, blasphemous, drunken, lecherous, and utter utterly corrupt. It's hard to be more negative than that. Uh, Roosevelt, though, thought cowboys were just terrific, and he romanticized them. <clears throat> in his book, Ranch Life and the Hunting Trail, Roosevelt wrote that cowboys, quote, were as hardy and self-reliant as any man who ever breathed, with bronzed set faces and keen eyes that look all the world straight in the face without flinching as they flash out from under the broad-brimmed hats. Uh, he said he thought they were much better fellows than small farmers or agricultural laborers, better too than the mechanics and workmen of the great cities, whom he thought shouldn't even be mentioned in the same breath. Just as a quick aside, there was a, a British uh, a fellow who came out to Colorado in the 1860s, and he, he claimed that he came from one of the sleepiest towns in Wessex, England. And he one day saw a cowboy riding through town, shooting off his gun at night, probably drunk. And alongside him on another horse was a young woman wearing only a chemise. And this British fellow looked at him and he thought, this is life with a capital L. You know, so, so some people really like this, this whole thing. Um, with the exception of some of the bosses and the ranchers, the cattle owners, uh, the average age of the cowboys in the 1880s was 23 or 24. 
And uh, there was little in the way of local law enforcement there, and many of the men carried guns and knives and looked for entertainment in saloons. So you're mixing weapons, booze, and young men, which is, you know, the perfect combination for a civil society, I'm sure. Um, so it may come as no surprise, though actually it is kind of surprising, that if you lived in a cow town, you were 10 to 40 times more likely to be <coughs> murdered than if you lived in New York City or Boston at that time. They, it was a, a part of the process was that you know these people had a, an exaggerated sense of honor and, and if you insulted somebody even slightly he'd, he'd just blow you away or try to. Um, Roosevelt himself again this is a little aside I'm afraid I'll, I don't want to run over but this is kind of a cool story Roosevelt was discouraged from carrying a gun when he was in Medora he was told don't bring your guns to town and because there were people around who were really good with guns and the newspaper editor the local newspaper editor told him. If you bring a gun into town, somebody's liable to, you know, try and push their luck with you, and, and they'll probably kill you because they're going to be a lot better with a gun than you are. And to prove his point, the editor had one of the local gunmen come out, and they threw two cans up in the air. And this gunman drew, both, drew a gun in each hand and put five holes through each can before they hit the ground. So Roosevelt thought, yeah, I think I'll leave my guns. <laughs> you know? He would check them in with the editor of the newspaper when he was in town, you know. So, uh, so you have this uh, pretty violent uh, uh, region going on here. Uh, uh, life was pretty raw, but it wasn't necessarily raw enough for Theodore Roosevelt. The ranch that he set up outside Medora during his buffalo hunt uh, was only seven miles south of town, and it was on one of the main trails. So he, was, he got sick of people stopping in, and uh, he established another ranch 30 miles north of Medora, way out in the middle of nowhere, and that's where it still is today. I mean, the ranch is gone, but that site is still very remote. Um, you, you, it's all dirt roads out to it, and it takes about an hour to get there, though it seems more like three days, you know, it's, it's a, a long, long drive out there. And so that ranch he called the Elkhorn Ranch, and um, he put some cattle out there. And in both ranches, he had managers who took care of his cattle for him. And he didn't really, I mean, you know, he was a rancher, and he did take work on the roundups, and he would occasionally do work around, around the ranch. But mostly he was interested in riding and hunting. And he, in a way, could interpret hunting as a form of ranch work because he would shoot deer and so on to provide meat for his men because they almost never ate cattle out in the, the ranch country. They ate mostly wild game. So Roosevelt spent a lot of his time hunting. And uh, he also he, he took long trips out to Montana and Wyoming to hunt grizzly bears and elk and so on, uh, mountain goats. And um, then he'd write books about this, and he made quite a bit of money at it. He also made frequent trips home to visit his family, so he never stayed in the Badlands more than, uh, more than four months at a time. During the three, three years or so that he was ranching, he spent a total of about 360 days out there, just coming and going, coming and going. Now, if ever a man was unlikely cowboy material, it was Theodore Roosevelt in 1884. His New York accent was grating even to a lot of New Yorkers. It was, it was considered kind of a snob accent. And uh, also, you know, that set him apart immediately among the cowboys. But then also, you know, as I said, he wasn't uh, a man of much stature, uh, weighing under 140 pounds. And he also had some eccentricities that the cowboys just couldn't quite understand. He, uh, he, he shaved every day and he brushed his teeth every day. And this was sort of beyond their ken. And he also slept with his head on an inflatable rubber pillow, which is not exactly what my image of Theodore Roosevelt, you know, this, this, uh, this t tough guy. But in fact, he would... Uh, 
uh, he had an inflatable pillow that he took with him when he went hunting, and he, he had a rubber bathtub shipped out to him so he could uh, take baths. But that wasn't even the end of it. He also had some special soap that he liked, and he would send his, his he would ask his sisters to send him large quantities of the special soap uh, that uh, that he wanted, because uh, he didn't want to have to use Castilian soap, you know. And to top it all off, he wore glasses, which just was, cowboys did not wear glasses, and uh, that was considered a real sign of weakness. And as if all that weren't enough, he bought himself a fringed. Um, uh, suede suit, you know, which is w what he's wearing on the cover of the book here. And that was, of course, for him a major symbol because that's what, what Daniel Boone wore. And so he was on the frontier and, and he had this fringed, um, this fringed outfit. And he also had a knife made for him at Tiffany's. And he had guns that he had, you know, ivory handles put on with his initials carved into them and so on. And now you can just imagine Daniel Boone going to Tiffany's to order a knife, you know. But this, this is Roosevelt. And so one cowboy, when he met him at this time, said, said Roosevelt was a slim, anemic-looking young fellow dressed in the exaggerated style which newcomers on the frontier affected and which was considered indisputable evidence of the rank tenderfoot. Now, needless to say, when you're roaming around with a bunch of guys who have guns and knives, you probably don't want to be a rank tenderfoot. So Roosevelt had to establish himself as a man among men. And these were lawless, armed men. And chances to prove himself popped up again and again, as you might imagine, in that environment. And he proved himself very well. Arguably the most important incident of this sort, I, I talk about several of his interactions with people, but the, the most famous one uh, took place in Mingusville, Montana, also today known as Weibo, Montana, uh, where Roosevelt stopped in one night after he'd spent the day riding around looking for some lost horses. And he checked into a hotel, and he went into the hotel saloon, and he was immediately confronted by a man with a gun in each hand who was drunk and had been shooting holes in the saloon clock. And uh, the, he also was intimidating everyone in the bar and forcing people to buy drinks. So when Roosevelt came in, he called Roosevelt Four Eyes and told him it's time to buy a round of drinks for everyone in the place. So Roosevelt tried to avoid the guy, and he went and took a table behind a stove where he hoped he wouldn't be seen. But the fellow followed him and said, hey, you know, buy drinks, buy a round of drinks. So Roosevelt stood up and said, uh, well, if I've got to, I've got to. And now Roosevelt was a trained boxer, so what he felt he had to do was punch the lights out of this guy, which he did. He, he socked him three times in the jaw. Uh, the man fell backwards, his guns went off, and the fellow hit his head on the bar and, and knocked himself senseless. So Roosevelt took his guns, and the patrons in the bar, who were probably much happier now than they were before Roosevelt showed up, uh, took this fellow and dumped him in a shed behind the saloon. And the next day, the fellow jumped to freight and left town. This, this story immediately spread all over the area, and Roosevelt, uh, you know, people began thinking, well, he, he may be a pretty cool guy after all, even, you know, even though he wears glasses and has kind of a weird suit. And um, so uh, that started to, to uh, help his reputation a lot. I mean, I, I found uh, uh, interviews with folks who knew him back then who had, were out west, and they said that that, that was the, the, the stepping off point for him in the West. But he also proved himself in tamer ways. He worked side by side with the cowboys and the ranchers, and he worked very hard. And you know, this was an area where you don't build a reputation on your family name or your social connections or your wealth. It was based on, on how you performed as an individual. And Roosevelt performed very well. On his first roundup, uh, the cowboys really uh, began to have a, a good impression of him. Uh, on that first roundup, about 60 cowboys spent five weeks riding for 200 miles down the Little Missouri River Valley, um, scooping up all the cattle they could find for 50 miles on each side of the river. And they were also driving, and that was several thousand cattle, of course, they were also driving along several hundred horses because, you know, if you had 60 
riders, he needed uh, about six to 10 horses per person to, to do this work. And uh, so they, they, there was a lot of work involved in just herding these animals along. The cowboys soon noticed that Roosevelt was extremely tough. He could uh, ride all night long and the next day ride another 100 miles. And they, at one, on one occasion, he rode for 40 straight hours and wore out five horses uh, before he, he himself took a nap. Um, so the cowboys start, you know, really admired his willingness to pitch in to the extent that he could. Like he, he wasn't a good roper, for example, because that almost takes a lifetime of practice. And then he had, you know, his eyesight wasn't very good. But they recognized that, that he could do, that he did what he could. And one of the uh, tougher ranch foremen said, uh, that four-eyed maverick has sand, sand in his craw aplenty, which was a high praise in the, in the West, you know. You want sand in your craw. Um, now, the effort he put into ranching and hunting paid off for Roosevelt really quickly. By autumn 1884, he had transformed physically. One newspaper reporter told his readers, what a change. Last March, he was a pale, slim young man with a thin piping voice and a general looks of dyspepsia. He is now brown as a berry and has increased 30 pounds in weight. The voice is now hearty and strong enough to drive oxen. Another reporter pointed out that he was also losing the eastern accent, which they thought, which they thought was a good idea. But the Badlands wasn't a complete success because he still suffered emotionally over Alice's death. He told one of his uh, ranch managers that in regard to Alice, he was beyond any healing. And his ranch manager said, who'd, who had also lost his wife recently, uh, started to console Roosevelt. And Roosevelt cut him off and said, now don't talk to me about time will make a difference. Time will never change me in that respect. Of course, we know it's not a good idea to say never and always. So, but Roosevelt had no intention to remarry. Um, he, he felt that to, do, to remarry within months or, and even years after his wife's death would be a sign of kind of ethical and moral collapse uh, and, a, and a, a real lack of fidelity. And this idea was as much a product of his times and his social class as it was of his, his himself. But he was still had a serious temptation that he had to deal with. And this was a, a slim, sensually rounded woman with a peach complexion, a wide mouth, and pale blue eyes. And her name was Edith Caro. He had known her since they were both little kids. They'd grown up together. And, and when he was in his teens, he even proposed to her more than once, and she turned him down. Um, or, or at least that's what she, she said later. And it's, and it's probably true. Um, uh, Edith uh, was also a friend of Roosevelt's sister, Anna. Now, Anna was the, the sister with whom Roosevelt had left his daughter, his baby girl. And when Roosevelt came to New York, he would stay with his sister at her townhouse on Madison Avenue, because he didn't have a house at that time. Edith also would sometimes stay overnight at, at Anna's house. So Roosevelt said, well, listen, warn me if Edith is going to show up because I'll, I won't, I'll make sure I'm not there. But one day, there was no warning, and he, he arrived at Anna's house, and he stepped inside, and here came Edith walking toward him down the main staircase. This was probably in early October 1885, barely a year and a half after Alice died. So they struck up a conversation, and a relationship progressed really quickly. And by quickly, I mean that six weeks later, he proposed to her, and she accepted. So um, after that, uh, he, you know, he, felt, he felt very guilty. You know, this whole betrothal just really ate at him, because he would pace around at night um, saying, I have no constancy, I have no constancy. He felt he was unfaithful to Alice. Um, consequently, they kept their wedding plan secret, he and Edith. They were so secret that even Anna didn't know about it. And they planned to get married in December in England where they could avoid the press. But the press wasn't going to be avoided because the New York Times in August 1886, when Roosevelt was out in the Badlands, uh, published a story saying that he was engaged to Edith Carroll. And um, there's a little side story to this because Anna, 
immediately wrote an incensed letter to the New York Times editor and said, uh, apologize and retract it, that's not true at all, because she didn't know he was getting married. So when she sent Rose, and the New York Times did retract the story. So when Roosevelt, when she sent in, you know, the news of this development to Roosevelt, you can imagine his chagrin, you know, because he's like, uh oh, <laughs> you know, he had to call, he had to contact Anna and tell her, well, guess what, I, I am engaged, you know, and uh, he said, I, I, no one will reproach me as much as I will for for having gotten engaged, and it's my fault, not Edith's. Don't blame her. But apparently, the wedding was not a big political setback because the Republican Party ran him for the mayoral candidate candidacy of New York uh, in 1886. It was a three-way race. And no one really expected Roosevelt to win, uh, or I should say the Republican Party to win. And f there were a lot of machinations involved, which are in, in the book, but I won't go into that right now. Um, but Roosevelt um, uh, did lose the election. And shortly after that, he headed to England, and he and Edith got married. So the question is now, what's he going to do with the ranch? Well, Edith wasn't the type of woman who would live in a log cabin in the frontier, you know. But, but nature kind of took over. The, the, uh, I've just been given a five-minute warning, so I'm going I'm to breeze through some of this. The uh, price for cattle really collapsed, and so Roosevelt knew that economically it just wasn't tenable anymore. And then came the winter of 86-87, when the blizzards, blizzards struck and uh, drifts built up 100 feet deep along the, the uh, Little Missouri River. Temperatures fell to minus 40 degrees Fahrenheit, and by spring, 75% of the cattle in the Badlands were dead. Roosevelt lost about 65% of his. Some lost 95. So he, he knew that it was pretty much over, but at any rate, his political career was reviving, and uh, um, he was going to uh, um, probably give up the, the ranching thing anyway. But, the, but his experiences in, in the sand, in the Sandhills, Sandhills is where I worked on a ranch, his experiences in the Badlands um, um, stayed with him for the rest of his life and certainly inspired his conservation ethic. Uh, he, as we know, he became one of our leading conservationists. Uh, he founded the Boone and Crockett Club uh, to um, protect wildlife habitat and wildlife. He, he knew from his experiences in the Badlands that habitat was just being punished in those days. Uh, the grasslands are completely destroyed by too many cattle, and uh, wildlife, of course, is being killed off. So the Boone and Crockett Club set out to protect habitat and to protect wildlife. And, um, and they did so with a lot of success, and they, they still exist today, that, that organization. As president, he had a lot to do with the creation of the wildlife refuge system and the national parks. Uh, the national park system already existed, but he added five more parks to it. Now... In his later years, uh, Roosevelt asked a friend rhetorically to guess what one part of his life, uh, including his roles as New York City police commissioner, a state legislator, a federal civil service commissioner, an assistant secretary of the Navy, a war hero, a New York governor, and a U.S. president. What one, one role in his life, that active life of his, would he want to remember if, for some reason, he were compelled to have all but one of his memories erased? It's interesting that he would even think of that. And he answered himself, I would take the memory of my life on the ranch with its experiences close to nature and among the men who live nearest to her. Now, I've had to, you know, breeze through on this uh, and just touch some of the high points that are covered in the book, naturally. And I, I like to think you won't read it in, in half an hour, and that's the time I had. Um, uh, but if you have any questions, I'd certainly be glad to answer them. Did he go back to check on his young daughter while he was in the Badlands? Yes, I, I, I skimmed past that because of the time constraints. But he did go back and forth to see his daughter. But he wasn't, at first he would write letters home to Anna and not even mention her. It was almost as if he didn't want to even think about her. 
And gradually, she starts to appear in his letters. There will be some phrase where he'll say, how is Mousekins doing, you know? And her name was Alice also. And for a while, it seemed like he was reluctant to call her, her Alice. Um, interestingly, in terms of his first wife, he never mentioned her again. When he wrote his biography, she was not in it. He never talked about her again. He, 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 she just, he just obliterated her from memory. And um, one of his biographers said this is really kind of a, of a pathology almost to be so extreme in his approach to dealing with her loss. And he didn't even tell his daughter about her. His daughter never heard a word about her mother from, from Theodore Roosevelt. She heard it from Anna, her, her, uh, the uh, Roosevelt's sister. Um, but she never heard anything about her mother, and, and uh, she felt that that was probably not good for her, her herself either. But he did, uh, he turned her over to Anna, and when he married Edith, he told Anna, you can keep Alice. And then Edith said, no, I, I will take Alice. So Roosevelt had to tell Anna, oh, we're going to take her after all. <laughs> and so he, she was raised with his other children. But she always knew she wasn't one of that set of kids, you know. So I always felt that Alice got, you know, really got kind of shafted, and I think the memory of his wife was treated kind of shabbily, you know. But that's the way he did it. Anything else? I had the impression that um, he lost almost all of his fortune in the Badlands mm. and then had to write mm -hmm. in order to yeah. survive. Yeah, I don't think we could say he lost all of his fortune, but he was definitely financially stressed because uh, he put in about $80,000. He lost about 20000 and um, at least plus interest. And, um, you know, he did build a big house out at Sagamore, Sagamore Hill, which is in Oyster Bay, New York. It's, it's, an, it's open to the public. And you can see the head of the buffalo that he shot in 1883. It's on a wall out there. But there were times when he thought he'd have to sell that house. You know, he and Edith talked about selling the house. And there were times when he thought about selling his favorite fox hunting horse and so on, because he just was financially strapped. And he would occasionally in, in letters say, you know, I've really got to do some writing. I've got to make some money, you know. And, uh, um, and he did a lot of writing. You know, he would get like $1,200 in 1880s dollars for a, a, a magazine story. And I'm, I would say about $50 to the dollar but by today's standards. But yeah, he was he was uh, he was hurting after the uh, the debacle there in, in the in the Badlands. Anything else? Sure. Um, his attitude toward the American uh, Indian at that time. Mm -hmm. did, did, did you unpack anything? Yes. That? Yeah, I did. When he was out in the Badlands one day, he he came across uh, three or four Indians, and he naturally he immediately presumed they were going to attack him, and he got out his rifle and, and all of this. And I use that as a launching point to discuss Roosevelt and race. Uh, and, and so I talk about Roosevelt within the context of the Indians, which and seg you into talking about uh, his whole attitude toward, toward race and uh, African-Americans and, and so on. Um, but with the Indians, you know, his, his, like I said, his first response was to, you know, grab this rifle. And when the Indians rode toward him, he aimed at them and he said, naturally, you know, they all, they kind of backed off. But when his ranch hands saw Indians, they would just go over and talk to them, you know. And uh, at one point, uh, some of his ranch hands actually walked into a whole village of Indians and just to buy some things, you know. And so I, a lot of it, I think, was just Roosevelt. In his head, there was just all this adventure and excitement, hostility going on, and that was much more fun than thinking they were peaceful. I mean, I'm just saying this. This is just my opinion. I could be totally wrong. Because there were some people who, you know, Indians at that time in that area were treated like coyotes, and they were just shot at on sight and so on. And even though there, you know, ostensibly the wars were over by, for a number of years, and uh, consequently, occasionally an Indian would shoot back. And um, uh, one fellow was uh, wounded by an Indian at the time Roosevelt was out there. So you know, the, 
you could argue, well, you know, maybe he was right. Maybe, maybe he would have been roughed up and, or they'd have stolen his horse or something. Um, but he, you know, his attitude, he said something about, as far as I'm concerned, uh, nine out of t 10 Indians are, you know, he, he wouldn't, he said, I won't say that, that an Indian is better off dead than alive, but nine out of 10 cases, that's probably true. And I wouldn't inquire too deeply into the 10th case, you know. And, uh, but, and yet at the same time, he once told an Indian woman when he was at the White House that one of his regrets was he didn't have any Indian, Indian blood. So you think, well, that's, that's neat. But then he also had this idea that, that white people should, should marry with Indians just to kind of wipe them out <laughs> genetically. So you don't know what to make of all this. You know? Now, real Roosevelt fans might get really annoyed with me for even bringing these things up, but these are, these are the things he said. And I think he was very, his, his attitude toward race was probably very complex. You know, he, he invited, uh, I believe it was George Washington Carver to the White House for dinner. Was it a Booker, Booker, T. Booker T. Booker T. That's who it was. Booker T. Washington to the White House. And he was just trounced for that. You know, I mean, he was just reviled for, for doing that. And yet at the same time, when he ran on the Bull Moose Party, he tried to keep uh, blacks from, um, he tried to limit their vote uh, because it, w it wouldn't have been well for him. You know, so. It's a very mixed bag, and I don't think with, with Roosevelt that you can say, well, he was this or he was that. He seemed to be whatever he was at the moment. Anything else? I have one more, uh -huh. if I could. Sure. Uh, did he ever, uh, in, uh, when he ran for presidency on his own, or later, did he ever go back there on a sentimental journey? Yes, yes, he did. And in fact, I, I closed the book um, uh, up to the prologue with, with this. He did go back. Actually, when he was running as vice president, he went out there. And then again, I think in 05. Um, and he went back. He, he uh, visited the folks he knew there. He picked people out of the crowd to come up on the stage with him. And um, uh, at one point in the journey, he was crossing the Dakotas and he went on the back of the train and where there was just this place and he wanted to be seated alone and he had the porter close the door and not let anyone out there to, to see him and he just sat there alone with his memories you know and I always thought that was just a great image um, but even up to six months before he died he, he was out in Montana and he saw one of the old uh, people the folks he knew from the ranch and this would have been in 19 uh, I think it was uh, about November of 1918 and he died in January 1919 uh, and he saw one of his old pals and he had the guy share a hotel room with him and, and so on. And I went through a lot of his letters through the Library of Congress, which is presidential stuff, which is way after the period I'm dealing with. But he, I, I did that because he kept in touch with a lot of the people he knew on the ranch uh, for years. So that right up till he died, he was still writing letters back and forth. And in fact, he had promised them that he was going to visit in 1919 uh, for the, the roundup that summer, but he died before he, he, he got there. Anything else? Okay. Roger, um, we know so many presidents have shaped their image and been very conscious mm -hmm. about it. Mm -hmm. And even the cover image for your book, you know, presents uh, such a uh, yeah. dashing frontier, um, frontiersman image. Can you talk a little bit about how conscious uh, oh, yeah. Roosevelt was yeah. of shaping his image, even in these early years? And he, right. he was intensely ambitious. Was he already contemplating his return to politics and how this yeah. period would play into that? Okay. Yeah, but politically, you know, he, he kind of gave up his career and, and felt that his career was over because he had opposed uh, James G. Blaine 
and then later on he backed him. So the reform politicians were really angry with him for, for backing Blaine. Uh, but, but Roosevelt felt, well, you have, to be, you have to have party loyalty. There's no point in having a convention and picking someone if you're not going to support the guy if it's not the guy you want. You know? So he, he decided to support Blaine after all. And he thought that that pretty much killed his career, at least that's what he said. But at the same time, uh, you know, there were people who were trying to get him to run for Congress and so on, so I'm not sure how much of that was just his own drama. You know, oh, my career is dead. But in fact, you look at his life and you don't see evidence of that. So I think even at this time that this photo was taken, when he was about 24, 25, that he was still planning to come back to a political career. And when he was out in the Dakotas, a newspaper reporter said to him, you know, you could be president someday. And Roosevelt just said, yeah, I could. You know, I mean, he didn't treat it as a surprise or, or anything. And so the editor had this impression that Roosevelt probably was already thinking about this at that time. And he continued to be active politically. He campaigned for James G. Blaine. He campaigned for other candidates and so on. And in terms of image, you know, he was a very image-conscious person. He told William Howard Taft, don't ever let him take a picture of you playing golf or tennis. And, 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 but you'll look good on a horse. Not, maybe not William Howard Taft, because he was over 300 pounds. But, but you know, you'll see one of the famous photos of Roosevelt is leaping in a horse over a fence. You know? and, and Roosevelt was well aware that that was, that was a great image. You know? And you'll see a lot of pictures of Roosevelt on a horse you know, in, this, in his Spanish-American War uniform and so on. And the picture on the book, that was taken in a studio in New York. And, you know, he got all suited up. He doesn't have his glasses on, you'll notice. And uh, if you see the full picture, you know, you can see there's fake grass at his feet and so on. So when and he had these pictures shot for his first book about life on the ranch, which he did after he'd only had about, you know, six months experience out there. And so he was really pushing this image of, you know, I'm this frontiersman. And, and if you read the stories that he tells in his books, but you know what was really going on, you know, he'll, he'll give the impression that, for example, he was out hunting buffalo all by himself and that... Uh, you know, he did this on his own when, in fact, he had a guide with him who said, okay, shoot that buffalo right there where that yellow spot is behind its front leg, you know, and you'll kill it. And, but that's all missing from his account of it. And uh, so when the book came out, um, he was widely ridiculed for these photos, you know, of him in, in, this, in this suit. On the other hand, in all fairness to Roosevelt, it was not uncommon for, for guys back then who'd been out west to have these studio pictures taken to themselves and then put them in books. He was really, it was really kind of a trend, and he was part of it, but still people kind of mocked him for it. Why politics? Because it was pretty disreputable yeah. for rich people to get yeah. into. Yeah, yeah. I talk at some length about his political decision um, and about New York politics at that time because New York politics were terribly corrupt, and, and the, the feeling was that People were losing tons of money in tax dollars because of the corruption, but that nobody cared because nobody bothered to take the time or pay attention to what was going on. And uh, there was a sense that, I mean, there's always a, uh, this story that Roosevelt was getting into something unsavory, but he had relatives who had served in Congress and who had been senators, and uh, a senator, uh, if I remember correctly, someone in the House of Representatives. These were other relatives. And... Um, but, but what he did was he was going at the state level, not the federal level. And I suspect that's where things were considered a little unsavory. And um, he, um, he knew that you know, his family probably wasn't going to approve of this. And I do quote some of his relatives saying uh, that we just thought this was terrible. And this was a terrible choice. His father never would have approved, you know, they said. And, uh, but he, uh, he, he did it anyway. And... Uh, uh, and he earned quite a reputation for himself quickly because he was uncompromising because, as he said, you know, I have money, I have nothing to lose, I can just, I'll do what I want, nobody's going to buy me. And people really respected that, and, and he, be, he truly became a household word in, in New York State within a year or so. 
and uh, he was nominated for a leadership position in the party, you know, the speaker of the assembly. It didn't get it, but uh, it, but he was truly a party leader within a year or two after, he, you know, he, he was only, he wasn't even 25, you know, and he was already a, a leading uh, political light. So, anything else? Okay. Any other questions? That's it. Well, thank you again. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you very much.